for reading and uh, your prayer. Um, well, as many of you um, know, this past Monday was Valentine's Day. Hopefully, no men forgot. And maybe if you are romantically involved with someone, maybe you celebrated with a date night, maybe a nice steak dinner or wine. Maybe you watched a, one of the most romantic movies of all time. Hopefully someone watched The Princess Bride. And, and as you know, this is family day weekend. Tomorrow is family day. And so maybe you have plans to go for a winter hike or, or tobogganing. Or maybe if you like warm, the warmth, you'll stay inside and, and play cards or games. And it's a time of year both of these holidays remind us it's a time of year where um, relationships are on the spotlight. Now, particularly romantic relationships and family. And when we start thinking about those two things, it's not long before we can think about marriage. And for some of us, when we think of marriage, others of us drift towards thinking about singleness. And so we're going to do a short mini-series, two sermons. One sermon today on the gift of marriage. And next week, we're going to do a sermon on the gift of singleness. And as we begin today, um, if you're tempted to check out, you know, I'm single, I don't need to learn about marriage, or I'm married next week, I don't need to think about singleness, it's important for us to remember, and maybe for some of you it's been quite a while, you'd have to remember, but all of us were single at one point or another. And all of us know people who are married and others who are single. And we care about them. We love about these people. And some of us today who are single will one day be married. And some of you who are married here today will again be single someday. Not to be morbid, but every one of us is going to experience death. And it's very rare for two spouses to die at the same time. So one of you will be going first and leaving the other one behind single. So this is, these are two important uh, state of beings, relationships that we all must understand. And as we come to think about marriage and singleness, um, immediately we're, we're, we see something of a contrast. On one hand, in our, in our North American culture, there, there's and this increasing perspective, not held by everyone, but it is growing, that, that marriage is something rather unnecessary, I mean, isn't, isn't it just a piece of paper? Why do I have to go through all of this? Or, or by others, it can be seen as something oppressive. It's actually a bad thing. And on the other hand, in the church, and probably most of us here today, broadly speaking, marriage is something almost expected of everyone. And to the point where, where sometimes, intentionally or unintentionally, most of the time, singles can almost feel like outsiders, like they don't belong or, or they can feel like second-class Christians. You know, you'll, you'll get there someday. And, and so as we come to marriage in the church, it can easily become an idol, something that we almost value too much, that we put in the place of God. We would never say this aloud in the church. We know better. But we can almost think that our spouse is the one who really completes us, fulfills us, not God himself. And both of these ways can have a devastating effect about marriage because both of them ultimately make marriage about us. It's about me, my happiness, my fulfillment. So, how should we think about marriage? Or maybe better yet, 
how does God and the Bible think about marriage? Well, today in, in the passage that Paul read for us in Genesis 2, we're, we're confronted with the first marriage, the story of, of God making marriage, and we'll see that marriage is a good gift from God for His glory. That marriage is a gift from God for our good, collectively, and His glory. We're going to see three points, and my hope is that as we go over each point, that for some of us we'll be reminded, refreshed, and others of us may be instructed and corrected. And so the first truth we see in our passage, first off, seems a bit simple, but it's profound. God made marriage. That is, it is God who takes the initiative to bring a man and a woman together in marriage. God made marriage. See, Moses, the author of Genesis, has been describing in these first couple chapters how God made the world and how God made mankind. And in chapter 1, Genesis has this grand overview of the days of creation. In Genesis 2, it retells the creation story, but it's from a different perspective, a different angle. It's much more up close And there's a bit of a different focus. So we might say that Genesis 1 is like a drone view from over top. And Genesis 2 is a bit more like a GoPro on your head. You can be looking at the same event. It can look quite different. And here, in particular, is the focus of the creation of women and the creation of marriage. And this is immediately where we'll see what Christianity, biblical Christianity, butts heads with our contemporary culture. Because in our, in our secular, contemporary culture, there are two, at least two ways that people often view marriage. A popular way amongst many sociologists and anthropologists is that they reduce marriage to, to a mere product of, of social evolution and history. It kind of, it's arisen in different cultures in different places. Every place has kind of practiced it a bit different. Our own contemporary view is a product of this social evolution and history. And what's often implied there's really no right way to do marriage or wrong way to do marriage. Everyone just does it differently. Live and let live. However, alongside this popular view is a bit more of an individualistic or or overly romantic view of marriage that sees marriage as primarily meant to fulfill me, make me happy. And so as long as I find someone I love and we both consent, I can really make marriage however I want to make it. One example of this, this mindset um, is found in, in this CBC interview um, where their CBC journalist is interviewing this uh, married couple, and they are in an open marriage. And so in an open marriage, you are uh, married, but you both have permission to have sex with other individuals whom you're not married to. And so the, the couple says, I also feel like it's important to remind people that just because it doesn't look or sound normal or it doesn't fit inside a particular box that you're used to, doesn't mean that it can't be wildly beautiful and work really well and be super valuable to the people involved. It doesn't have to be one path fits all. And if if you choose monogamy, that's fantastic. Now, the logic here is that as long as love and consent are involved, I can really make or redefine marriage for what it is for me. Whoever I marry, maybe how many people I marry, whether marriage is open, whether it's closed, it's really up to me. 
But, but here in Genesis, here in Genesis 2, our text, we see this startlingly, startlingly different view. Here we're told that God made marriage. And so marriage does not originate in human culture and society. It isn't a Western thing. It's not an Eastern thing. It doesn't uh, arise from our individual desire or feelings. It originates with God. So he has taken the initiative. He, it's his idea. You might say God has the copyright rights. And this means as an implication, we don't have the right as humans to remake marriage however we want and still call it marriage. Since God made marriage, marriage then becomes holy and sacred, meaning that it is something set apart. It is consecrated by God himself. It means it has value. And it means that marriage has a meaningful purpose that does not change with the whims of popular opinion, the latest poll, or what I may feel personally. It's much bigger than us. Now, let's, let's look back to our text. In, in verse 18, up to this point, God has been um, creating the, the vegetation, and he's created Adam, and everything is being described as good. However, in verse 18, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. This, this is the first time in the creation story that we're told something is not good. Man's aloneness is something that God thinks needs to be answered. Notice it's, it's God who says it, not Adam. And, and the, the verse continues, God saying, I will make a helper suitable for him. So you understand, it's not good for man to be alone, so he needs someone to help him. And in verses 19 and 20, God uh, brings the animals forward before Adam looking for a helper. And, and none of them are suitable helpers. Not even, and I love dogs, not even a dog, like a golden retriever or a collie, was not a suitable helper for Adam. And so we might wonder, well, okay, what does Adam really need help with? Well, well, in Genesis 1, God tells that Adam and mankind is to have rule and dominion over the world, that they are to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. There is a clear procreational, baby-making element to this. Adam needs a partner, someone who's like him in a way um, that a dog or a cat is not, yet different from him. He needs a helper. Now, as a side note, the, the implication here is Eve is created as that helper, and that might offend some here today, because if Eve is made as a helper for Adam, that, does that demean women? Does that mean women are somehow less valuable? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. And one thing that maybe helps clarify that misunderstanding sometimes is that the word helper in the Bible is not a negative term. And actually, most often in the Old Testament, the word helper is used to describe God in God's relationship with Israel. God is actually the one who's often described as the helper of Israel. There's many examples, especially in the Psalms, but one in Deuteronomy Maybe you remember this verse. It says, Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper. Same word, helper. And no one would say, oh, how demeaning of God. How dare you say God helps Israel. That doesn't make sense. It is, it's not a negative term or a pejorative term. It is a positive one, full of dignity. So Adam on his own is not enough 
He needs someone to help him. And so God makes woman, makes Eve, for this purpose. That man would not be alone, nor would she be alone. But together they would have each other. Now in verse 22, uh, in verse 21, God puts Adam to, to sleep. In verse 22, we see that it is God who makes woman. From, from Adam's rib, from his side. And God brings her to him. Every step of the way, God is taking the initiative. He is the one making the first move. And also, we have to understand what God did not do. God did not make three Eves for Adam. God didn't make another man for Adam or any other combination. God made one woman for one man. And he brings them together. And to make it very clear that this isn't, okay, that's just describing one event that happened in the past... In verse 24, it says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. See, God made marriage as a a holy institution between one man and one woman, one husband, one wife. They're similar, but they are different. Complementary. They're, They're stronger together. And so since this this God of the universe, infinite in his wisdom and his goodness, has created marriage, we must learn what it was created for and treat it properly. You know, we we would not use a hockey stick to, to shovel out a driveway after a snowstorm. We would not use a shovel to play hockey on the ice rink because that's not what those are designed for. We must understand what marriage is designed for and treat it properly accordingly. And then we must understand in this that marriage is a good gift from God for a man and a woman to enjoy companionship and procreation. The second truth we see here in Genesis is that God makes marriage as a holy creative bond. God makes marriage as a holy creative bond. You see, in verse 23, Adam sings out, Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's essentially saying, finally, someone who's like me. And in verse 24, again, a a husband and wife will bond together, and it says, they will become one flesh. So so the two are alike, but more than that, the two become one in this marriage. See, in marriage, God makes something altogether new. In a marriage, you come forward as two on that day, and you leave as one. Anna Maria von Schurman, a woman who lived in the 1600s, she knew 14 languages, and for fun, she would study theology in her pastime. And and on this passage, she she kind of has a poetic way of phrasing it. From one, God makes two. And from those two, he again makes one. This oneness in a a, uh, marriage clearly has a, a sexual and procreative element. After all, God's command is to multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. And in the creational differences between men and women, it's clear that they are different from one another. You put a male body and a female body together, they are different. But it's also more than that. There is a relational element to it as well. In a marriage, rightly, you can no longer live for yourself. You have to learn, and sometimes it might be slow, we begin to think in terms of us and we not me and I. And it isn't this 50-50% keep a scorecard. 
You're on the same team. It's 100% together. And one example of when, when both of this, this sexual procreative element and this relational element come together is in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writing to husbands and wives, he says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. You see, in this new bond, you actually belong to your spouse. You, you don't, but you don't belong to each other in some sort of slavish or perverse sense, crushing sense. You belong to someone, you're entrusted to this person to love them, to cherish them. And so we begin to learn, sometimes very slowly, but we begin to start thinking about, you know, how can I, how can I encourage him? How, you know, how can I serve her? Let her know I love her. Rather than primarily thinking, oh, there they go again, they didn't do what I wanted. And so if you're a believer in this marriage, it uh, really becomes one of the most practical arenas for your sanctification. That is, you becoming more like Christ, more like Jesus. Uh, Paul Washer, a, a pastor, illustrates this in a powerful way. He says that if, if a Christian is to grow to be more like Christ, there's a lot of areas where we all must grow in, but, but at least three areas. When you think of Christ in the Scriptures, think of unconditional love, mercy, grace. Think that's fair? If you look at Jesus in the Scriptures, would you describe Him that way? Well, Washer asks, well... How would you ever learn unconditional love if you were married to someone who never disappointed you, who never failed you? How would you learn mercy? That, that is like a, a patience, compassion. If you were married to someone who, who never wronged you, never sinned against you, was never slow to admit, I'm wrong, was never slow to ask for forgiveness. How would you ever learn grace? That is to pour out your favor on someone who doesn't deserve it. If you were married to someone who always deserved all good things all the time. If you're married, God has brought you together with someone who is a sinner, just like you are. And so now that you are united as one with this fellow sinner, you begin to, to learn to become like the God we worship, a God full of this loving kindness, mercy, and grace. And, and if you are here today and you are married, maybe can you, in your minds, can you think back to your wedding day? Do you remember that? Hopefully. Maybe, probably a lot of planning went into who should come, where are we going to sit, what, what, what do we eat for dinner, can we afford this, what do we wear? I wonder men, specifically, can, can you remember, you're standing up front, maybe in front of a church, maybe outside somewhere. Do you remember the moment when your bride-to-be started to walk down the aisle towards you? Or ladies? Do you remember that moment when you started to walk down the aisle towards him and seeing him? Well, on that day, you're probably fixated on each other, but on that day, you didn't see him, but God was there. And on that day, God brought you together to his one, knitted you together. God did that. And he brought you together that you would enjoy companionship together. 
that you would enjoy the gift of sexual intimacy and procreation together. And as one way to teach you to become more like Christ, to, to mold you and teach you to become holy, just as your God is holy, and all to His glory. All this is bound up in the gift of marriage as a holy creative bond. And lastly, the third point we see here is that, that God made marriage to show us all the gospel. God made marriage to show us all the gospel. You see, here in Genesis, Adam and Eve are united as one. And Moses tells us again in verse 24 that, that this is true for every marriage that is to come. This is something that doesn't change. And all of this is meant to, to foreshadow, to point towards the coming of Christ and our salvation and our union with Christ as believers. For just as, as a husband and wife are one in marriage, the church and Christ are one. The believer in Christ are one through salvation. Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells us in Ephesians 5 that Christ and his church are one. In Ephesians 5, verse 31, Paul actually quotes a ver the verse from our, our passage here today. Paul says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. But then, in the next verse, he, he adds, Now this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And if th this comparison surprises you, if that's new to you, think about this, that Jesus often describes himself as a bridegroom in parables or, or in discussions. And one example of that is in, in Mark 2, the Pharisees come towards Jesus and, and they're, uh, they're not happy with the disciples because your disciples don't fast like the other disciples fast. Why not? And Jesus defends his disciples and his defenses, they're with the bridegroom. So it's okay. Or one, other, one last example, in John 2, Jesus' first miracle where he turns water into wine, we often focus on the, the water to wine element. But do you remember what event Jesus was at when he did that? He was at a wedding between a bride and a bridegroom. Martin Luther loved to use this imagery to help us understand what goes on in our salvation. He says, Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul, our soul, is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now, let faith come between them and the sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's. While grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For, because, if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself all the things that are his bride's and bestow upon her, as give her all the things that are his. In marriage, if, if, if you are married, maybe everything you belong becomes your spouse's. And maybe for some of us that meant when we were first married, you know, my school debt became our school debt. My junky car became, or my, yeah, my junky car became our junky car. Well, in a much greater way, in this marriage between Christ and the church, we bring nothing. And he brings everything. In the gospel, Christ takes upon our sins upon himself. And by faith, he gives us his righteousness. What is his becomes ours. What's ours becomes his. And this is true already for the believer. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you don't know this. At least hear this, that, that Christ always says, come to him. Come to him and believe. And just as in a marriage, he will take everything that you have, your sins. 
and he will give you all that he has, his righteousness and new life. And if you're not married here today, like me, God has put married people in our lives as a reminder of this gospel. It's a, it's a visible reminder. It's a sign. When we see their relationship, a healthy marriage, God is trying to remind us of His love for us and our union with Christ. Some of us, we're not married, and we desire marriage. Some of us are not married, eh, and we're fine. We don't really don't need it for now, maybe. Maybe not. But regardless, all of us singles, we need to know this, that we're, we're single, but we're not alone. We're single, but we're not deficient. We are united to Christ through faith. And this union with Christ is the ultimate union that all these earthly marriages point towards. And it's not wrong to desire marriage. But when we see married people, we have to train ourselves. The first thought when we see a married person is not, you know, I don't have that. I really wish I had that. We need to not see what we don't have. We need to see what we do have. We look at a healthy marriage and we remember, I am in a greater way. I am united to Christ. I have Christ. And so do you see? That that marriage was never an end in itself. Marriage is a good gift from God, but it is not something ultimate. Marriage reflects something far greater and more permanent. If you're married, I'm sure you love your spouse, probably very dearly, but your spouse, as great as they are, as much of a gift as they are, they are never meant to complete you. They were never meant to fulfill you. Only God does that. But it was designed to point us towards the greater loving relationship between Christ and his people. For if you can imagine, the greatest human marriage will pale in comparison to what we will all experience with Christ. And whereas this human marriage is temporary, the marriage between Christ and His church will be everlasting. And this greater union with Christ, something that every single one of us is going to enjoy, will be something we'll enjoy forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come before you today, Lord, and we are thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your wisdom. We thank you for the gift of marriage, Lord. Help us all, whether we're married or not, value marriage as a gift, Lord, but help us not to idolize marriage. Take it beyond your intentions. Lord, we pray for the marriages in this congregation. Don't know what they're going through, Lord, that you would help them, that you would keep them strong and full of love and forgiveness, and grace. Lord, we pray for any unbelievers here today, Lord, that they might, for the first time, see the beauty and the majesty of your love and grace in Christ and the gospel, and that they would believe in you. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.